your ear, this is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Oto Asa Le Moira Tuila Epitela. Coming up. And if the Australians could work on that and, and offer a better package where after four years of service, for example, after four years of service, you got automatic citizenship. I tell you what, Fijians will jump at the chance. Australia's opposition calls on the Albanese government to allow Pacific peoples to join the Defence Force. With uh, those commitments and uh, really those efforts, I think we've done uh, a tremendous job in, in combating uh, IUU. Palau's moves to protect its oceans have seen a reduction in negative impacts on its marine life and economy. That opportunity opened up for all the players. Football in Samoa will be a very, very competitive sport. As you've seen with the Rugby Sevens, one of the stars in the Rugby Sevens used to be our, our national team striker. And the Pacific region's biggest football club tournament begins this weekend in Vanuatu. Australia's federal opposition is calling on the Albanese government to allow Pacific peoples to join the Defence Force to address declining recruitment numbers. William Tonginivalu, a Fijian British Army veteran who served in Afghanistan and Iraq, thinks it's a great idea, but wants Australia to learn lessons from Britain recruiting from Fiji. He speaks with Caleb Fotheringham. I thoroughly enjoyed my time with the British Army. One of the reasons for me joining up was to, as they say, you know, join the Army, see the world. And I certainly did that, not only through operational tours, but, you know, exercises in various other countries and also sporting tours to other countries. As a person from Fiji in the Pacific, we have a lot of, I would say, loyalty to the Crown, so to speak, you know, because of our history with the British. So when the chance was there for me to join the British Army, I myself... Uh, as with thousands of others, you know, took that opportunity. And what Australia looks like they want to do doesn't seem too dissimilar from what sort of your experience has been. What do you think of the idea of Australia recruiting people from the Pacific Islands? I think it's great. You know, at the moment, there's a lot of recruitment going on with, with NAC and the Palm Scheme, you know, where they've got Recruiters coming here to Fiji and recruiting people into the various industries there, like working in the abattoirs, aged care, and the tourism industry as well. So I see no reason why they can't, you know, extend that and and get people to join up uh, and join join the military. I think there are better long-term prospects for our people in joining the military. With us joining the British Army, you know, whilst it was a great experience, there are a lot of things that perhaps the British could have done better for us uh, as foreign Commonwealth soldiers. And perhaps that's something that the Australians might want to consider, looking at our experiences in joining the British Army and just getting, you know, giving us a better package or a better deal. Is it okay if you just touch on some of the things that you sure, feel like sure, the British sure. Army could have done better? If you um, look in the news, there's a lot of commentary about the, the way Fijians were treated in terms of their citizenship. For example, myself, I served 13 years, but at the end of that, there was a lot of difficulties in getting my visa done or for me to apply for my indefinite leave to remain and then get my uh, sort of citizenship. The, the rules were pretty stringent and there seemed to be no exception whatsoever to to the time you served with the British Army. At the end of it, you know, the immigration officers looked at you as like any other person from any other country wanting to, to gain citizenship. They didn't place any importance on the fact that you actually served the crown, so to speak, you know. At the time, we didn't have a king, we had a queen, so we served the queen wholeheartedly, willing to put our lives on the line 
But at the end of the day, when we got back, we were treated like any other person applying for their papers. And if the Australians could work on that and, and offer a better package where after four years of service, for example, after four years of service, you got automatic citizenship. You didn't have to apply for that. I tell you what, Fijians will jump at the chance of joining the Australian Army rather than the British Army. For one thing, it's closer to home. Uh, there's a bigger Australian uh, Fijian community in Australia. You'll have guys lining up to join the Australian Army, I tell you that. In terms of being in the Army culturally, how was it for you? As a Fijian joining the uh, British Army, for us, loyalty to the Crown is ingrained in us. You go to almost any house in the Fijian village, you'll see the portrait of the Queen. And again, given our history, people went over there really looking forward to serve. The Army offered us a lot of opportunities to increase our education, travel the world, see other places, and just see what, you know, a great big machinery like the British Army. We're coming from a country of less than a million people to join an organization as an army at that time when we joined, whose strength was at about 200,000 serving soldiers and reserves. And so things that were a lot different to the small island country like Fiji. I think most of us really, really enjoyed it. I think one of the difficulties uh, of, of joining the British Army was just the distance from Fiji. You know, you traveled for over 30 hours to get back home. So it wasn't only the time, but also the cost of traveling that were, you know, big factors to consider. And if the Australians actively recruited from Fiji, you'd have a lot of them choosing to join the Australian Army rather than Fiji. In fact, whilst I was still serving, a lot of soldiers looked at the opportunity to transfer into the Australian Army. And I think some of them did. And if it was purely for that reason, it was just, England was just too far away from home. That definitely makes plenty of sense. If Australia does go down this route and get people from the Pacific Islands, some people could see this potentially as exploitation. Do you view it as exploitation if Australia does open up the doors for Pacific Islanders to join their military? Exploitation, that's quite a strong term, you know, because it is. You, guys, you guys can get an Australia a visa to come to Fiji, hardly any questions asked, right? Yeah, that's right. But when, if, if I can't even get a visa to come through Australia on a transit visa. I've, I've, I've gone for work, you know, being a security a consultant, uh, a technical advisor, you know, I get to travel to Solomon Islands, to Papua New Guinea. But I cannot get a transit visa to Australia. That's the difficulties we face. If you guys are going to come here and recruit us, the best thing you can do is just to make things easier for us as well. You know, it's not just to come and take us for work. You know, we'd like to travel freely to in Australia. We'd like to go for holidays. Not everyone wants to reach Australia and and disappear. You know, look at me, for example. I'm a professional, yet I cannot get a transit visa to Australia. I've got to wait for almost eight hours in Brisbane Airport for my connecting flight. You know, how ridiculous is that? So if you guys are going to come... Like as you are now, you're recruiting us for NAC, for Palm, and now if you're going to do this in the, with the British Army, just understand that you want things from us. You know, you want our labor, you want us to uh, to meet the demands of your labor market. Then be a bit more lenient with us because we want to travel in and out of Australia too, like you guys travel in and out of Fiji or the Pacific. So if Australia starts recruiting people from Fiji for their military, you would like to see things start becoming a bit more 
two-sided. Yeah, of, of course. Of course. You know, Australia would be a preferred holiday destination. But it's just quite difficult for us to get there. Palau's move to protect its ocean have seen a reduction in negative impacts to its marine life and economy. In 2019, Palau took up the challenge to combat illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing, or IUU, by 2023 in the Pacific. So far, it has reported a reduction in illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing in its waters. RNZ Pacific reporter Rachel Nath spoke with President Surangao Junior Whips in a wide-ranging interview beginning with Palau's effort to protect its oceans. Of course, we're close to Asia, so uh, there's a lot of boats that uh, transit because they're going supposedly to the high seas or going to other fishing grounds. So... Uh, it's a constant uh, uh, effort uh, to monitor. So we have uh, air resources, we have sea resources, we're using satellite tracking, and we're grateful to our partners to help us to have that capability. And what we've seen is because of all that effort, uh, there's been a reduction. Uh, so um, that's a positive thing I can share. And what would you say have contributed to these outcomes? And that's really a result of these conferences. Getting commitments, getting joining uh, forces, and 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 uh, you know, Global Fishing Watch is, is 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 one of the you know that's also at these conferences, and, and what they're doing with technology and, and studying. That's 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 how you share. That's how you learn. That's how you can really find those dark targets and hopefully track down uh, those uh, IUUs. And has there been a significant input into tracking down IUUs? Uh, absolutely. And uh, it's really, it's because of the partnerships that we have with Australia, the United States, uh, Taiwan, Japan, uh, coming and helping us uh, with, uh, not only with uh, patrol boats, but uh, control centers, uh, technology. And so that we're building our, our capability and then also helping us with air assets to, to help us monitor. So uh, with uh, those commitments and, and really those efforts, I think we've done uh, a tremendous job in, in combating uh, IUU. So let's talk about the other challenges faced by Palau in regards to ocean protection. The the challenges that we have with our oceans, uh, one, warming. Warming of our oceans is causing uh, coral bleaching, it's causing our jellyfish uh, to disappear, it's, uh, which are uh, world famous and, and people come here to die with them uh, because they're stingless. Uh, fortunately, they do come back, but uh, the cycle has increased because of, of warming. Uh, we know our fish stocks are, are declining. They say by 2050, maybe 50% of them will migrate out because of heat. Uh, so, they, you know, that that's real. That's what's happening now. When it comes to IUU, the challenges of uh, uh, illegal unreported fishing, uh, major problem. When it comes to uh, pollution, uh, Palau is very fortunate. We have three three uh, currents that uh, converge in Palau. Uh, unfortunately, because of the three currents, now we get all that plastic pollution that shows up on our shores. So uh, 
we need to do more. And I think that's why it's important that we have these con conferences to continue to build that momentum, to build understanding, to find the research to, you know, uh, we talk about marine protected areas. One of the things that uh, uh, we promote uh, as members of the high-level high panel on oceans is, is to have 30% of all oceans protected by 2030 and 100% managed. And, um, you know, there's constant threats. The latest threat that we're faced with now is let's go uh, plow and, and suck up the bottom of the ocean because what do we need? We need uh, these rare earth uh, materials for batteries and, and whatever. It's, and, and that's why it's important that we have these uh, conferences so that we can talk about these issues, find solutions, and make those commitments. And finally, I'd like to address how is Palau tracking its SDGs? Uh, really uh, led by the United States uh, to create a digital hub um, uh, uh, so that you can have a digital dashboard to keep track of uh, impacts that we're having on the SDGs, and especially around oceans. Uh, the other one that we're, uh, that Palau launched, uh, Palau is, is, of course, well known for our efforts in, in protecting uh, not only the um, near shore, but our whole EEZ. And, and one of the things that we're working on and have launched is what we call our marine spatial planning process. Uh, that, is, that is really using science and data uh, and uh, community uh, uh, input to, to come up with the best way to really sustainably manage and optimize the use of the marine resources that we have so that we can use them from now into the future and protect the, 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 the unique biodiversity that we have. Uh, so that process began uh, after our Oceans Conference in Palau last year. And we hope to have uh, it completed by uh, 2024. And really, our goal is also to demonstrate to our Pacific uh, brothers, large ocean states, how uh, protection, uh, how we can balance protection and production, and, and really come out with a, a better result for everyone. Are listening to Pacific Waves. Donga's Geological Service has boosted the monitoring of the Hunga Donga Hunga Hapai volcano with additional equipment. The Volcano Eruption Detector Project is a joint US Tonga initiative and has led to the installation of an infrasound which will record the sound waves the volcano produces. This is the first localised infrastructure, meaning it's just programmed to monitor volcanic activity in the Kingdom of Tonga. Tonga's Geological Service head, Daniela Kula, says this project will help to increase the monitoring of the volcano. The only equipment we have for detecting volcanic eruption is, is satellite. Eh? Mm. Um, so we heavily rely on satellite systems. The uh, earthquake sensors or seismic sensors that we have are distributed throughout Tonga. Um, they detect movement of the earth. Eh? But he says the seismic sensors don't really detect volcanic eruptions. So the earth doesn't move uh, when the magma tries to escape yeah. uh, the oceanic crust. Um, so we cannot rely on a seismic sensor. Mm -hmm. um, but as soon as 
as any eruption uh, breaks the water into the atmosphere, then it's picked up by the yeah. infrasound. Yeah? If it's large enough, it can detect. A geophysicist with the United States Geological Survey, Martin Lafevers, says his team was in Tonga on invitation of the government. The monitoring instruments were donated to Tonga in 2022, but COVID-19 meant the USGS team was not able to travel till April of this year. Mr Lafevers describes the equipment sent to Tonga. One is a, a seismic instrument, for which there's several of around Tonga, both here on Tonga Tapu and on other islands as well. But we've brought another type of an instrument called an infrasound. Uh, the infrasound instrument sort of like the microphone I'm speaking into now, except it is sensitive to a broad range of air pressure signals. When you speak, you generate air pressure and the microphone picks it up. Well, when the Earth speaks in various ways, it also generates pressure changes. He says the data, which is real-time data from the infrastructure, is 24 hours a day and seven days a week. The data is produced by the sensor and it will connect to a computer system over a cellular telemetry. The computer system has automated processing to determine what the direction was to the event and when it happened. Those results are produced within seconds and they can provide some idea of how big the explosion is and inform scientists of next steps, whether the public needs to be informed or alerted or whether this is just a a kind of a standard activity that is familiar and not of concern. The infrastructure is based on Tongatapu and Nukualofa. There's an infrastructure also in PNG's East New Britain, but it's on global monitoring. Pacific region's biggest football tournament begins this weekend when Vanuatu hosts the Oceania Champions League. The lineup was confirmed by a series of national playoffs in the seven top-ranked nations. The final team was selected by a qualifying tournament held in Apia, Samoa in February. Samoan champions Lupe Olesoanga easily qualified with three massive wins against teams from American Samoa, and the Cook Islands. But despite scoring 29 goals and conceding only one, Lupe are not expected to be in the running for the title and with it a place in FIFA's World Club Cup later this year. As Craig Stephen found out from team manager Lai Zautianga, they have lost some players from the qualifying tournament. So what's your expectations for the Champions League? This is our, uh, it's like we are not new to this uh, tournament. So mm-hmm. we have a fair idea of the uh, complexity and the uh, intensity of the uh, the tournament. So, yeah, we are coming prepared for, for, all, the, uh, for all the opponents. And uh, we always look forward to this, uh, to, to this uh, challenge. So you did very well in qualifying. You won your, your three games very comprehensively by big scores. So obviously that went uh, pretty much to plan or even better? Yeah, actually we're trying to um, continue on with the uh, what we left off with from the qualifying round. Uh, even though that uh, we have some issues with our player selection, but we, we have the, the faith and trust in our, in our squad that we have already. Can you explain what you mean by uh, the, the problems with the player registration? There's quite some uh, few issues that uh, it took us up uh, this year. 
and it's our first time uh, to be informed of such uh, regulations. But we were like uh, we we have players that uh, we thought that the qualifying round was sufficiently um, eligibility for all the players to attend the finals. However, it was a different story, and also that uh, our federation has uh, put forth put forward our um, our transfer window. So, majority of our players has to transfer to different clubs. So, from the the lot that we have in the first um, in the qualifying round, we have like twelve of the players uh, left during that. Uh, because of that uh, reason. So you've had to look for some other players? Actually, we are not allowed, given the uh, regulations for this tournament, is that uh, we only uh, have to select the ones from the provisional list that we provide before the, the tournament. We are not allowed to uh, include any players outside of the provisional list. Do you think that the squad that you would take to Vanuatu for the Champions League um, is as strong as the one that you had in the qualifiers? I would say um, with the players that we have and uh, we've got uh, some new players that haven't uh, played uh, a single match in the uh, Champions League, not even a qualifying round. So they will be the ones that will go through the baptism of fire on this, uh, on this league. So definitely it's going to be a debut for them, but we don't see that as a weakness for our team, in our team, but we do uh, uh, have faith in in their performances. We were we were not going to bring in any uh, a team that's going to make up the numbers in this tournament. Um, but when you're talking about Samoan football, obviously there's a a small pool of players because you have rugby and you've got rugby league. How can football sort of compete with those sports for top players? I guess uh, what we've uh, seen here in uh, in our uh, in our country, even though it's a uh, rugby and uh, rugby league um, sport uh, uh, country, but uh, we feel that uh, we need to have a transition for our players, like a transitional work or some transitional opportunity for our players, because. Um, I guess what uh, we've tried so hard to uh, in developing our own players, we always uh, try and uh, get opportunities and uh, make contacts with the clubs in New Zealand as well as in uh, Papua New Guinea. Uh, so we were, we were fortunate enough to uh, got one of our players transfer uh, bringing a Hekari United. I think last two years, last uh, just before COVID. So we see that if this that opportunity open up for all the players. Pretty much, there will be football in Samoa will be a, will be a very very competitive sport. As you've seen with the rugby sevens, uh, rugby sevens. One of the one of the stars in the rugby sevens it used to be our our national team striker. Who was that? Paul Scanlon. Do you, how, how how do you feel the standard is in uh, Samoan football? Do you do you think it's like improving overall? Actually. From my point of view and with what we've hands-on with our developments, we see that football is it's coming up. We, 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 we pledge for uh, the Oceania clubs to allow some of the clubs from Samoa uh, to have those 
those dry nations like the ones that I've seen with the Fiji and Vanuatu Solomons, and uh, we 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 hope that uh, Samoa will be um, tag along with those uh, competitions. And it's just I think for Samoa we we don't we, we don't play we don't we we play for the love of sport, but we don't have any professional players where we give them like they get uh, remunerated. And that's Pacific Waves for today. To listen back, head over to rnzi.com slash programs. Or you can download us on Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. From myself and the team here at RNZ Pacific, former Awala Loom.